0: Saturn Dave here from Sega Saturn Shiro, and today we're pulling from the Shiro Archive an interview with Ken Lowe of the Mednik Group, responsible for the branding, packaging, and print ad campaigns during the Sega CD, 32X, and Saturn eras. The Shiro's who conducted this interview are myself, Peter Malik, Patrick Trainer, Ben Wallace, and Nick Broadway. This interview has been uploaded for archival purposes and may be used with permission. We hope you enjoy.
1: Welcome to
2: the cast, Ken.
1: Thanks guys, appreciate it.
2: So just before we start, maybe if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, You know what you do and uh, your involvement with SEGA.
1: Sure. I'm actually currently I'm uh, working at Apple, but prior to that, I spent many years on the on the agency side. I have a have a design background and uh, spent a lot of years in advertising and design. And so my connection to Sega primarily is through the work that I did through an agency called the Mednick Group, uh, where we launched Sega Saturn. We also did a ton of advertising for Sega CD, 32X. A lot of packaging, so we were we, you know, Sega was definitely one of our big clients, and it was great to work for an industry that I also enjoyed as well. Did you grow up playing video games? I did, and I mean, I had a my brother and I shared an Apple E and uh, we, of course, you know, did it uh, mostly for gaming. We we did a little programming, of course, but uh, we played all the little Apple games. We also had a uh, my parents had a had a Windows. A pc and we played games on that from a console perspective the first one actually was this this uh, a tank game that was literally just a tank game that you you'd plug into your television and it had uh, four joysticks each player controlled two joysticks for you know pushing both of them forward for forward pushing them pull, pull back for left for reverse and then the right one forward for turning left the left one forward for turning right and it was it was pretty basic, but it was a tank shooting game that was a lot of fun. And then I, you know, most of the time uh, when the consoles came out, I think I, I spent more time with PlayStation than anything. It's ironic that we we worked for Sega, but at home I, I played with PlayStation. No, <laughs> yeah. No. Interview over. Yeah. We had uh, we of course had all the consoles um, in the office, and you know this. I had to uh, you know we got had a chance to play all the games and get get to know the consoles, just because we were doing ads for them and packaging for them. But uh, at home, I, I just played PlayStation.
3: So I'm kind of curious though. So you were talking about the Apple IIe, yeah, uh, which came out in the '80s, and then you were talking about how you were playing a PlayStation in the office, but. We've skipped over a whole generation of the Sega Genesis and the Nintendo, and yes. uh, so what, were you a Nintendo fan or were you a Sega fan back in that day?
1: Um, actually, it was I would probably say it was more Atari for me. We did not have a lot of money growing up, so you know the computer was a big luxury. My friends had the consoles, and Atari was the console that I played periodically there would there would be one friend that had a nintendo and we would play nintendo but for the most part i i I think i'd say i grew up on atari um
0: 2600
1: the gosh no it was the 800 i don't even i can't even remember (laughs) (laughs) can you describe the controller (laughs) it was the 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 controller was a black controller with a red button uh 2600 that had to have been 26 uh, yeah. yeah Yeah. Yeah. I mean you're your your classic Atari, I guess is, right. is.
0: So your portfolio spans multiple ad agencies you mentioned you're working with Apple now. Obviously, you have spanned a couple decades now of different experience and working with notable clients and I can also see just looking at the body of your work that you know you've had a progression and gone through different changes in your design sense but uh, mm-hmm. I'm just wondering what made you choose design and marketing is a career path in the first place. And how did that path lead you to working for Sega?
1: That's a great question. we I actually had no idea there was even a business known as design when I was growing up. I, I went to college as a business major, took my first econ class and realized, oh my God, I just do not want to do business for the rest of my life. So I went to the uh, career center at uh, Cal State Long Beach, did a bunch of tests, and they said, hey, you should try graphic design and uh when i went to visit the the design department that's when i sort of realized gosh this is something i've been doing my entire life i've been you know i've been drawing logos on my peachy folders and you know really paying a lot of attention to design in general but it just just never occurred to me that you could you can earn a living in design so that was kind of the beginning i i I ended up uh joining the design department i got my degree uh in uh, advertising and design. And went to work pretty much right out of school, started as a designer, moved my way into art director and did some advertising, spent many years as a creative director. And then I, once the, the dot-com era sort of exploded, all, the, all of the clients kind of went away. And so I, I ended up going client-side at that point. But getting back to the, you know, how did I get to work on Sega... It was through this uh, agency called the Metna Group. I joined them pretty much fresh out of school. They had already had Sega as a client. You know, I I, I started mostly just doing logos for for games and packages, and then uh, very quickly moved into the advertising uh, side of the business. And... um, You know, I I honestly can't even remember how many ads I I did. It was uh, some of the most interesting work for me because I considered myself a gamer at the time. And um, so I really loved the the space and I just loved to do stuff that I had a passion for. Now,
4: is it true that you essentially physically worked at the Sega of America headquarters, working on Sega's
1: branding? You know, I'm not sure where that came from because um, that's not true. I spent very little time at their headquarters. In fact, I, I don't even remember if I've ever step foot in their headquarters i spent most of my time back at the at the agency uh which was in culver city california um so i'm not exactly sure where that came from (laughs) gotcha well good to clear that up and then would you be able to tell me what
4: it was like working with them to word it weirdly a non-physical standpoint you were were kind of separated from their offices and sure i'm assuming communicating through mainly email and phone and stuff like that What, what was that like and what was working with them like in that uh with that type of environment
1: yeah. So keep in mind, this is this is very early in my career. So I was young. I was just, uh, you know, I was just a kid, and uh, the so I didn't really have face-to-face interactions with the clients. There were there were other folks in the company whose job it was was to interface with the clients, and my job was to sit back in the office and do the work. <laughs> so yeah. the the briefs would come. I would sit with the with the creative directors. Uh, i would understand the briefs um and then you know me along with a bunch of other designers we would just get cranking on stuff um we probably would generate a ton of work that that would never see the light of day and sometimes that's the, the those are some of my most uh my favorite ads or my favorite logos are ones that never actually saw the light of day because ultimately things get changed and you know, people give feedback, and you know, oh, b- before you know it, the the it's just a shadow of what you kind of imagined it to be in the first place. So, so I didn't really deal with the clients directly uh, with Sega. I I was more behind the scenes working on the on the ads and the and the packages. Gotcha. Was Sega generally easy to to work with in that regard? I feel like you know, from my perspective, I feel like it was because while we did a lot of revisions, um, that's pretty much par for the course in, in any design company. You, you always did a lot of revisions. And I think the, the measure for whether or not it's a good client is how much stuff actually gets produced. And, you know, we produced a ton of stuff at, at the Mendel Groups for Sega, uh, as well as for other uh, gaming companies as well. But uh, Sega was probably one of the largest clients we had. So,
0: but in terms of the environment, like, did you guys have? Product lying around. Did you have a lot of like Sega arcade units or systems that you were encouraged to play to kind of familiarize yourself with the culture and like what they were going for?
1: Definitely, we had a we had a conference room. Uh, It was kind of a a weird pie shaped conference room, but it it had uh, glass on all sides and basically a a gaming setup inside there. So any, I, I spent probably half my time in in that room either playing the games or uh concepting for ads my my copywriting partner and I would would often just work in that room uh so we could surround ourselves with the product um and then we would just stick up you know sketches on the you know on the glass walls just tape them up and you know go through the ideas and uh you know ultimately we would pick the ones that we would sketch up and and uh, you know, at that point, then you move back to the computer and, and, you know, put it together and then ship it off to the
2: account executives and they would go talk to the clients. And you mentioned that there's a ton of stuff that, uh, you, you know, you, you guys produced that never saw the light of day, whatever happened to all that stuff? Like, is it, did all of it get uh, passed on to Sega and then they did whatever they did with it? Or did that stay with you guys? I think there was
1: definitely an, an archive at the Mednik Group, you know, just folders, big, huge file folders of stuff that both was produced and was just presented. I think Sega technically did own the rights to all that work because we were, we were work for hire. They certainly wouldn't have, uh, you know, shown it to anybody because that was, according to them, the rejects, the stuff that they didn't want. Right. Um, but we would, you know, I think occasionally a designer would put something in their portfolio. You know, we would definitely have the, 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 the envelopes folders in the, in the office that we would sometimes go back and reference because we would, we'd be working on a new ad and we'd think, Hey, wait a minute. There was some this other thing that we did, or maybe a logo we did for another company that we felt, you know, could inspire, uh, another project. We'd be able to go back to those archives and, and sort of s-
2: sort through those a bit. I wonder if they still exist to this day.
1: I very much doubt it uh, because the the Medna group is no longer. It actually turned into one of the first interactive advertising agencies that merged both print and digital competencies. And it turned into an agency called Think New Ideas, of which I ended up working for as well. But, you know, I think once the MEDNIC group stopped, a lot of the stuff that was the work, uh, I I don't know what they did with it. But I I, got to believe it's not stored anywhere (laughs) at this point because it was a lot of stuff.
3: Now, I know you were mentioning that you don't remember the game specifically that you were doing the art and designs for, but do you happen to recall any of your first or early design projects for Sega?
1: Yeah, I think the, the, the ones that I remember the most would be some of the Sega CD ads. Uh, we did an ad for Tomcat Alley. Uh, we did an ad for Eternal Champions. Um, and then we did a bunch of stuff for the, the CDX and 32X. Uh, that was all done all prior to saturn.
0: This was all print?
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: I'm I'm curious. I had I um, th- you said that, that the Mednet group went back before you um even back to the Genesis and I'm just wondering when the Genesis launched in I believe it was 89 their design language was very reminiscent of the master system they had kind of like this Black background with the white grid, almost like a math plotting paper. But then they started moving over to this new design language with these diagonal stripes on the boxes. Mm -hmm. Was the Mednik group responsible for that change, that shift that carried on through the Sega CD and then the Saturn, and then was dropped with the Dreamcast, I guess. But but it carried on with the 32X; those diagonal stripes.
1: Yeah, I'm. I'm definitely familiar with the diagonal stripes, but I don't know if they were there prior to Mednick taking over, or if perhaps Magnet created that pattern. I I got you. I, I remember it very vividly because <laughs> uh-huh. I we yeah. saw it. We saw it all over the place. You know, pretty it just, much all it the just... yeah.
0: Exactly, because I I noticed that in the 90s when Sega was like trying to support so many different consoles, that was kind of the one thing that would, on store shelves, kind of key you into the fact that that was a Sega product, you know? Those those diagonal stripes, they kind of unified their entire product line. Yeah. What did you think about Sega's add-ons? Basically, uh, the Sega CD or the 32X, um, did you feel like they were products that at the time... Sega was supporting strongly, or did you feel like they were just kind of milking their late success, or even putting the aging hardware on life support in order to stay competitive?
1: Yeah, yeah, I think the um, the add-ons were sort of, at least from from our perspective, being the the agency, it felt like a move toward trying to make sure the the platforms were evolving and not staying uh, too stagnant because things were, you know, the CD was you know, coming into play with a lot more capacity. So cartridges were no longer being used. Um, so the, that, you know, Sega Genesis with the CD add-on seemed like a logical step for them. The, the CDX actually was a product that I thought was one that I really wanted because I liked the portability of it. I liked how small it was. Of course, you know, being able to play uh, music CDs at the time also, and, you know, there were there were not very many small music players. <laughs> so the Sega... Uh, CDX, uh, the size of the CDX was about, you know, maybe it's a little bit on the large side for CD players, but it was a, it was about what you would expect to be, you know, walking around with. So it felt it felt like it, it was just a, a natural evolution of the business.
3: Now, I'm actually kind of curious, uh, from a designer standpoint on making ads for these add-ons, uh, it, I feel like that would be a really nice challenge to try to create something that. Uh, basically, is really enticing and uh, very unique uh, circumstances in the regard of the 32x and the CD, yeah. and yeah. how to promote them.
1: Of course, you know you're 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 dealing with gamers who are you know often adolescent and have a kind of a, a silly sense of humor. So one of my favorite ads was uh, for the 32x. Which had a kid kind of looking, uh, eyeing these two products, the 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 32x kind of going down on top of the uh, the Sega Genesis, and and the headline was, "Mommy, what are those two Sega machines doing?" (laughs) That that was one of my favorite ads because it was, you know, of course played to played to the audience. We could have some fun with the with the notion of, "Hey, this is a thing that mounts on another thing," and you know, Sega was always irreverent. They were they were never one to shy away from anything that, you know, by, certainly by today's standards would, would potentially be, you know, highly controversial, but
0: (laughs) they, they and Neo NS and K uh, for the Neo Geo, they both had a history of innuendo, like a lot of innuendo innuendo in their ads.
1: Yeah. And they, they absolutely encouraged us to do that. So, you know, there were many ads that we did that, you know, would, Maybe get run once or twice, and then they'd have to be pulled <laughs> were, like the naked lady. Yeah, that was that was one of mine as well. Not not yeah. one of my proudest <laughs> proudest moments, but yes, I, I wow. did do, do that one. Wow, that
4: gets tossed around on like non-video game related <laughs> social media feeds from time
1: to time. Yeah. Like that that one's had some traction. Yeah, that's legendary. The thing about the the thi- <laughs> uh, I did, I did, I did actually, I did the photo shoot. So um, of course <laughs> cool. that one um, yeah. the. <laughs> the uh the funny thing about that one the what the reason why I felt that worked uh, at the time was the whole tagline the the positioning was nothing else matters you know you are so interested in in gaming that nothing else matters and and that was basically the that concept was like okay these guys everyone is so fixated with the screenshots that you don't even see that there's this this beautiful naked woman you know behind <laughs> the, the screenshots but Of course, that was not the case, but uh, it it, it was a fun way to sort of get people to pay attention.
3: Yeah, we are still talking about it to this day. So that that was great.
2: Okay, let's talk a little bit about the uh, Saturn logo itself. Mm-hmm. So so obviously there was already a logo for the uh, Japanese market, but then it was changed for the Western market. So did Sega of America mandate or request the change? And did they give any reason for wanting a change?
1: Yeah, you know what's really interesting to me is, I, I and I, I, I got to believe my memory might be a little off here, but I seem to recall that the Japanese version of the logo that we saw didn't actually look like the Japanese logo that they that they went to production with, because the the, the the type uh, was this was definitely unchanged, but the mark, um, the, the the Saturn mark with the, the the cube with the S that's wrapped around it, I think that was derived from the work that we did for the U.S. Uh, and then just sort of flattened uh, for the Japanese market. But again, I, I could be completely wrong, but I, I honestly don't really remember seeing that mark uh, the Japanese version of it until after we had already finished
2: our uh, head for Saturn campaign do you recall around what time frame like time period you guys would have been working on on the logo like we that would have been like 94 I'd say Wow see that's okay so that's quite possible then because the machine launched in Japan in November of 94 so it's yeah. entirely possible that you know they looked at the uh, work that that you guys did and, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe made some adjustments there. Um, So, so tell me a little bit about the logo. So like what made you guys go for, for that look? Like I I know that there are several designs that you guys sort of looked at Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, how did you settle on what the current logo ended up being?
1: They definitely, uh, you know, with, with the 3d graphics, uh, they definitely wanted something that felt dimensional. A lot of the earlier logo concepts that we provided were more flat Uh, Which also is, if you ask most designers of the time, they would say, you got to, if it doesn't work flat, it doesn't really work. And so, you know, a lot of the designs we did were just like black and white, flat logo designs, just trying to get the forms, get the shapes. Um, And then some of them, we would would draw flat, but just dimensionalize them a bit with the way that we would draw the lines, you know, create highlights and shadows. But all, again, all in black and white. Uh, but that was also the time when uh, computers were getting a little bit more sophisticated, and now all of a sudden you could do gradients really easily. And so there was a trend toward you know using gradients and and you know starting to to do even logos in a much more dimensional way. So that was um, definitely d- a direction that they wanted to go. They wanted something that felt three dimensional because the you know we were they were talking about you know, three-dimensional-like graphics for their for their new console. And um, it was just, at the time, a little bit more progressive than than most mm-hmm. logos were, um, the way the logos were being designed back then.
0: Yeah, that move in the late 90s, ni- well, mid to late 90s towards, even Apple did it, you know, where they yeah. want to really make everything look three-dimensional, and, and then, of course, that died out and yeah. it all goes in waves and then yes. flat design comes <laughs> back and and now flat design has been around for a while and yeah and there are shifts in the industry but um it's interesting because i think that that logo that you ended up creating it really is a classic i mean sony's got their playstation logo mm-hmm. uh, it's synonymous with that brand and yep. then uh, yep. and then of course the nintendo 64 uh you know moniker is is classic yeah that, uh but the, i feel like the saturn logo really in my mind it's burned in my brain as like that that brand association <laughs> with this console that was kind of tragically failed in a way yeah, but at the yeah. same time it was it was kind of a dark horse you know yes and it was flattened for uh to be printed on the console itself they mm-hmm. did kind of like that AT&T logo where
1: yeah
0: where they use the just lines for the lines, gradient. Yeah. Mm-hmm. and it does look really class it looks really classy even in in a flat manner but i'm just curious like how you created it did you create it in like illustrator or was it like a 3d modeling program
1: there there was no 3d modeling program available at the time so i if i'm not mistaken i think that was a it was a photoshop illustrator also at cool. the time, could not really do gradients I mean, nowadays Illustrator, you can you can do gradients really simply, but back then it was not that simple. So I, I used Illustrator to draw the shape, and then I brought it into Photoshop and put the dimension on it in Photoshop.
0: Cool. So it is just Photoshop. Yeah. And a really old version
1: of Photoshop. <laughs> yeah. Uh, if there were 3D programs around at the time we certainly weren't using them <laughs> we didn't mm-hmm. we didn't we didn't have we didn't have the training to do full-on 3d work so probably like photoshop
4: cs negative one or something yeah you know, whatever they <laughs> probably kind of something is. like that yeah
0: well you did a much better job making it look 3d than the japanese guys did <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah that's a, that's the thing that i couldn't figure out is why they you know the only thing i can think of is that they just wanted it to kind of match color of the typography Uh Um, and uh but like i said i don't i don't really remember seeing that japanese version of the mark until until after we had already finished (laughs) our stuff
0: the sega cd logo i notice also kind of has like a saturn looking well it has like the disc did Uh you do the sega sorry the sega cdx uh you were talking about the sega cdx did you do the sega cdx logo
1: no, the CDX logo was done by uh, another designer at the Mednik Group, an amazing designer by the name of Van Dorn. He and I went to school together and we worked uh, together, but uh, he's the guy that did that CDX logo, which I think is fantastic.
0: I'm wondering if you t- had any uh, subconscious influence from that. <laughs> because I think that a lot in design, you know, we, uh, yeah. we take influence from things sometimes even subconsciously.
1: Yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, there. And we we would definitely pass around ideas. He he and I just we sat across from each other, so we I, I, it's very safe to say we both influenced each other. He would look at my stuff and give me pointers. I would look at his stuff and give him pointers. So it was a it was pretty a pretty good collaboration between the two of us.
4: And going from the logo to the ad campaigns, it's our understanding you had a pretty direct hand in that head for Saturn ad campaign. Is that right?
1: That's correct. I uh, worked with a copywriter by the name of Peter Thornburg, one of my best friends in the entire world at, at, as well. He's the one that came up with the headline and the, and uh, we kind of together came up with the, the concept of bald people with rings on their around their heads. <laughs> nice. <laughs> it's, it's very, it, it's definitely bizarre. And I, I look back at it now and I, I, I think it's still really weird. <laughs> and I, and I don't you know in my mind again 3d at the time it wasn't that mature so the way that it was all rendered with the globes floating around i don't particularly looking back at it now i don't i don't think it was done very well it was just a quirky campaign i'm i'm proud of the fact that we kind of stole this one away from sega's primary uh, advertising agency goodby silverstein and partners they're one of the best agencies in the world. They were definitely a company that I aspired to go work for at one point. And um, the fact that we got the print component of the launch, I think, was uh, a proud moment for all of us there. Nice.
4: It's kind of like a like a shift away from how they how they were in the Genesis days. It was more mm-hmm. more in your face, more kind of the early '90s tug and cheek, the attitude yeah. marketing, as many have called it. Yeah changing it to sort of the the bizarre and <laughs> like yeah. you said the bald people with rings around their heads was that was was that style shift kind of directed by sega or is that more of a stylistic choice that you and your people had the
1: had the freedom to make was that yeah. kind of a, a your idea thing i think it was our weird sense of <laughs> design and style that kind yeah. of brought that in and uh, I can still remember I can still see in my mind some of the mock-ups that we did with just you know we would get stock photos of weird quirky looking people and <laughs> take, take their head off and you know put rings around them and those were the comps that we would we would show to, to Sega and uh, you know they went for it so that's pretty cool. What
0: were, what were you guys trying to say though? That's, that's what I was wondering, because so, I know that Saturn, the tagline yeah. was, it's yeah. out there. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and and Sega was trying to communicate that it's out there, like you could go yeah. buy it. Yeah. And then you guys kind of took that and ran with it, like, and went way out there.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes. So
0: what were you trying to convey to, in the market, you know, to consumers?
1: I would say there were two things. And again, this is mostly Peter, the copywriter. Head for Saturn was, uh, you know, meant two different things. One was, hey, this thing is out there, go get it, and uh, that's why that's why the it's out there was also, you know, in, in tandem with Head for Saturn, it was sort of a, a, a call to action to say this thing's out there, go get it. Uh, but also, the idea of somebody who has a head for the console is, and you know, the literal interpretation of here's a head with Saturn rings around it was just something that we thought visually would just get people to pay attention. Uh, mm-hmm. and you know, we, we definitely believe some people would really hate it. And, uh, cause it's, cause it's weird. <laughs> people still talk to me about it today when they find out that I did that. And they're just like, that's the weirdest stuff I've ever seen for video games. Um, and I, I don't think I would disagree. It is. It's, it's pretty out there. <laughs>
0: well, the whole campaign was, <laughs> the whole campaign yeah. was weird. Including yes. the, the theater of the eye. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That was Goodby, so the theater of the eye was done by Goodby Silverstein, their their primary agency. What also was really weird to me is that usually when you launch something, you want everything to be completely tied together, but Sega made a decision to to go with Mednik for print and stick with Goodby for their television, and they weren't totally connected. <laughs> we did we actually did do a couple of spots uh, at Mednik that. Um, Sort of fall campaign where we started saying nothing else matters. The, the it's out there was the launch line, and then we we switched it to nothing else matters. And at that p- time, we did a couple of TV spots, but for the most part, Goodby was there was their uh, broadcast agency. You'd
4: said you weren't happy with how the globes and heads turned out. What would you've done differently? Kind of looking back at it more than twenty years later.
1: Yeah, you know the I, I actually still remember. The photographer was a good friend of mine, and he was a really good photographer. He shot amazing black and white. His name was Eric Tucker. He's not shooting anymore. I think he owns a restaurant these days, but he was amazing with black and white portraiture. And so the the outtakes for this shot were, they're really beautiful. I mean, they, they were really, they didn't really look like they belong with colorful screenshots of floating globes. And so I think to me it's the juxtaposition of those things that, that in retrospect, doesn't work so well. I, I would rather see the globes not be as colorful, a little bit more integrated with the with the scene, so it felt like it was, they were actually floating in that space. And then I would also uh, prefer a little less retouching on the model. I think the the retouching really changed a lot of the characteristics of her face. But it, you know this was this was advertising, and they you know people want more. I guess, uh, beautiful people in advertising, but I, you know, she, she was beautiful, but she definitely had some very strong characteristics with, uh, some wrinkles and some lines in her face that I thought were really interesting. And it actually made for the photo was a lot more haunting and, uh, interesting before the retouching, in my opinion.
0: Was she the same one that starred in the theater of the eye? Was it that same actress?
1: We didn't, we didn't do those, uh, the theater of the eye spots. Right. So they might they may have uh, certainly they knew who the models were that we used for print and uh, it's entirely possible they went
2: and, and hired her as well. There were two models that you guys used during uh, that particular campaign there was so, so the lady um, I believe her name is Ion Sky yep and then there was also Ice cube How yes. did that happen
1: So the so the original lady for the head for Saturn campaign was not Ioni Sky that was uh, a model by the name of Hannah Sim. And that was the launch campaign. And then we came back in the fall and we did the Ice Cube uh, spread and also one with Ioni Sky because we, we wanted to shift it toward more recognizable. We had, we had an idea that we had a lot more campaigns with a lot more uh, celebrities. And uh, these were the first two, but I think it ended up... Uh, <laughs> the console didn't do so well, so they didn't continue the adaptation. Being the before. last two. <laughs> yeah, right. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. Ione Sky. not a lot of people know, but I- Ione Sky was also the wife of one of the Beastie Boys. I can't remember exactly which one, but um, she at the time was a pretty popular actress. She had done some indie films, and we didn't really want to go super mainstream. We just wanted someone who was like known enough, but wasn't too popular, so uh, but Ice Cube was sort of the opposite of that. Like everybody knew who he was.
0: <laughs> he gave you that attitude.
1: Yes, yes.
3: So personally, I liked the Head for Saturn ad campaigns. I, I liked the unconventional and thought they were really interesting uh, when I was growing up. And uh, what's also kind of interesting is they're not the only bald person campaigns for the Saturn Mm -hmm. Uh, over in Japan. They had this very bizarre campaign as well with this, basically this bald elf uh, (laughs) looking character. And uh, did y'all's campaign uh, take any influence from that bizarre marketing campaign in Japan? Or do you think it may have even been the other way around? I I have no
1: idea because I, I I don't know the dates of when they did that and we certainly did not get a chance to see that before we did ours. It is pretty bizarre. It looks just like it looks like a conehead with Sega Saturn branding all over it. But um, we hadn't we hadn't seen that before. I kept I kept those ring props for a while after uh, for many years, um, but I I don't know what I've done with them since. But I. I just—it was such a weird campaign that uh, I, sometimes I like to keep keepsakes from things that I've done, and and the I had I think two sets of rings that that I kept uh, just in a in a uh, like a padded envelope for many many years, but I don't know where they are now. <laughs> unfortunately, uh, I'm sure you guys would would have uh, a lot more appreciation for them than than just like sitting in my garage somewhere. So if I do have them at some, I'm more than happy to send them out. That's amazing. You know, I
0: think I think. Ken, I think you would be forgiven, or the Medna Group would be forgiven for going with such a bizarre campaign because the '90s were such a bizarre time. Like, uh, <laughs> as far as far as off the wall marketing, uh, you know, you had the grunge era, and you had you know alternative music kind of taking over, and uh, you had you know a lot of youth kind of driving the mar. I, I guess youth have always had a play in in market, you know, but mm-hmm. they've had they had the dot-com boom and everything so it was a really crazy time and i'm just kind of wondering like what was going on in the mid-90s industry to prompt that kind of off-the-wall marketing approach for a games console i guess you know was there the sense that the market demographic was shifting towards these kids that grew up on the atari or the sega genesis were growing up and they had you know more income and and that this kind of marketing would appeal to them in some way
1: yeah I mean, I actually credit, I would definitely credit uh, Goodby Silverstein Partners more with the, the shift in sort of the advertising perspective. They're the ones that came up with the original Sega Scream. I don't know if you guys, I'm sure you guys remember that. Right. And their advertising definitely influenced me, you know, because it was irreverent. It was fun. It got talked about, and you know, it was just—it was always something that I think a lot of people that, that worked in advertising would be like, "Oh man, if we could do, if we could work on that kind of ad, it would be awesome. Uh, if we could get a client that would allow us to do those kinds of things, it would be awesome." So I, I think they actually had a lot to do with with shifting um, video game advertising with just the work that they did for Sega
0: did the work that you did in print inform the theater of the eye or like the video portion or was it the other way around where you kind of took the lead from Yeah, was it goodby that did that that campaign the video campaign yeah
1: yeah Uh, it was definitely goodby that did that campaign
0: and were they the ones that led off
1: um i think we we were we were sort of in competition you know, because Goodby typically what they they would do both the broadcast and the print advertising. So a lot of the earlier Sega advertising was done by Goodby, and so because we were in competition, we were typically not conversing with each other or sharing ideas with each other. Uh, the client on occasion would probably give direction to them that might have been influenced by the work we did or gave direction to us that might have been influenced by the work that they did. But we didn't really collaborate because we were, we were competitors. We, we pitched against them for that print portion of uh, the Saturn launch. So I think the influence, if there was any, it probably was just filtered through the client. And I honestly wouldn't know which direction <laughs> which direction influenced which.
0: What do you feel like at the time the, um, the Head for Saturn campaign was considered a success based on whatever analytics you would have had to go off of?
1: From the agency's perspective, absolutely, because it was a, it was a big campaign with high visibility. You know, we had billboards all over downtown L.A. for, three, for E3 when the, when the console was announced. And so it, it definitely, I think, got the buzz that we were expecting, but it didn't last very long. You know, we, we did the fall campaign, like I said, with, with Ice Cube and Ioni Sky. But after that, you know, it just kind of fell off and the, the console didn't didn't do too well. So, you know, you it's hard to blame the advertising for that, but it, you know, I'm, I'm sure if it had more mass appeal advertising, it maybe potentially would have stuck around a little bit longer. You know, I think from our perspective, it, it was successful because we it, it, it generated a lot of conversation. Uh, but whether or not you could tie sales to it, Probably not,
0: <laughs> but it did the job of letting people know that it was out there. Whether or yeah. not that, whether or not that spurred them on to to buy it at that three ninety nine yeah. price point, but yeah. it, it it got the job done.
1: Yeah, and we did we did a couple of follow up ads for specific game titles, but it, it it just wasn't it didn't last too long. Did you get to meet Ice Cube? I did. Yeah. We uh, did the photo shoot together. He was surprisingly the nicest guy you could ever meet. I mean, I, I, of course, I knew him, his, pers- his persona going to meet him. I was a little nervous. You know, he's a big star, you know, guy with an attitude. Would, would we need to do anything special to keep him happy at the photo shoot? He was the nicest guy. <laughs> I mean, it was it was it was the it was so bizarre for me because, again, I was a kid. I was like in my, you know, probably mid 20s trying to get this big star to put rings around his head was like, (laughs) I was like, are you, is he going to think I'm a dork for wanting to do that? And I was super nervous, but he was, he was the nicest guy. Did he like it? Did he like the rings? I, yeah, I think he enjoyed, he, he thought it was funny. You know, he had a good chuckle, Uh, but I, I I would bet if you asked him now, he'd be like, I wish I never did that.
4: (laughs) (laughs) And then uh, a question that I, Kind of came up with earlier when we were talking about the the naked lady ad. While we we're talking about models used for the ads, do you happen to know who that that uh, that kind woman is and what her like? Where is she now? Kind did of was, yeah. Where did
1: life take her since then? <laughs> well, I'm not sure where life took her since then. But that nice lady is actually Barbara Moore. You might recognize the name. She was Playboy Playmate of the Year. I think it was before she was Playmate of the Year before the campaign, I, I believe. Right she on. also did another ad for us. There was a, a, a sort of a double game ad for Virtual Fighter and uh, Battle Arena Toshinden, and she she dressed up as one of the one of the characters from from Toshinden for us, along with another model who dressed up as a character from oh, yeah. Virtual Fighter. Uh, we wow. did that ad. I think that ad was one of the ones that didn't didn't last very long either in in circulation. It just sort of was out there and then it got pulled. <laughs> <laughs> and then going
4: from from the the models to the the packaging of mm-hmm. the console itself, mm-hmm. um, yeah, the the Saturn console's box had a very simple, clean, and classy look. As yeah. the same look as its peripherals. When you look at the box for the mm-hmm. controllers, the arcade racer wheel, and and stuff like that. Yeah. Did you help create those con- the console box design and those other packaging design layouts that the many of the Western
1: Saturn fans have sort of grown to appreciate yeah. since then? I did not. That was done by another designer. I believe her name was Amy Decker. Uh, she did that system. I, I think to the degree that that I influenced it was really just about getting the the logo artwork prepared for it but i didn't actually do that packaging but as you noted earlier it has the same diagonal stripes but with Uh more of a subtle i think it was like varnished on the box instead of like the red and gray that that we typically would see in the the genesis packaging but they picked up on that same pattern and i i I thought the packaging was really effective it was very simple very clean uh looked uh, the brief was make it feel like an expensive product and you know that's that's definitely what we were going for
0: did you draw that font?
1: I did. Yes, I did.
0: The, the, the Saturn <laughs> font you drew that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. Yeah, that
1: was done in illustrator. And then again, brought into Photoshop to, to make three-dimensional.
0: That's crazy. Yeah. Some you, you have some other really mid nineties fonts that you used a lot. Like the bank gothic
1: gothic yep. Bangkok,
0: that was like a classic <laughs> 90s font
1: yes. that was just
0: used all over the place but i i've always wondered about that saturn font the official sega saturn font yeah you have it here people ken lowe created that font so for all the people online using that font to create artwork <laughs> and stuff. Now they know who's responsible.
1: Did they actually make a whole font out of it? I don't... I. I they I, did.
0: They did. Wow. It, you can download it online. It's called like Nisei or something. I wow. I don't know why, but... Or it's just called the Sega Saturn font. But yes, somebody turned it into a font.
1: <laughs> well, that I didn't do. Yeah.
0: All, all I did was the, the, the
1: logo piece of it, but that's that's hilarious. That somebody made a font out of it.
0: Yeah. You'll live on <laughs> through all of,
1: <laughs> through all of this stuff.
4: Did you also happen to do the 32X box? Just kind of asking out of curiosity.
1: Yeah, I did. That was one. I I know I did a ton of stuff for 32X, including the advertising and some uh, displays for some uh, trade shows. And I'm pretty sure the box uh, was one of those things. Because I, I remember the doing the photo shoot for that console with the colorful blue and yellow uh, lights in the back. But it, it, I don't have a real strong memory of it, but I...
0: did you just throw that stuff away like after trade shows yeah man i would love to dumpster dive those conventions yeah
1: (laughs) Yeah.
0: it's crazy it's just you know it's a piece of history
1: yeah that ad that i was talking about earlier with the kid you know mommy what are those two sega machines doing they were like huge they made huge stand-up banners for those for trade shows that um those that was a lot of fun to work on but yeah, they—they, they, I, I have no idea what happened to them after the shows. They must have, maybe they went back to Sega, and they had them in the
2: office for a while, and they probably destroyed them. So, so for some of your younger listeners, what were those two Sega machines doing? <laughs> they were making an arcade system. Oh, <laughs> of course, of course they were. Nice.
3: <laughs> a good way to put it. All right, shifting a little bit. Sega Underground. Yes. What was that?
1: So Sega Underground was. Um, I don't think it ever launched, Uh, but they the brief was they wanted to create uh, kind of a a club, a rewards program, if you will. And they didn't. It was really interesting because they they were very adamant about we don't want any type. We want it to feel tribal. Uh, We don't want it to be kind of explicit. We want people to like wonder what it is. And then you'll just when you see it, you recognize it, you'll know. Like you're you're an insider, so it was it was a bit of a loyalty uh, program like that they were trying to create. Group. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess you could say that. But they it was definitely something that they uh, obviously they wanted it to take off, but they they didn't want to promote it. They wanted it to be like very insider, you know, very exclusive.
3: Was it in response to Sony's own underground club that they had themselves, or was it something that predated Sony's?
1: uh let's see i think the sega underground we did i think in 1995 so i don't know when sony's was but uh the brief came in 95 for sega underground i don't think they ever produced it if or if they did they 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 produced maybe something else that a different agency did because we we did not go beyond a few rounds of uh logo mock-ups
3: Okay, so say I'm a member of Sega Underground. All right, mm-hmm. I've signed up. I know the logo. I recognize it. What's the goal from it? What do? What was the whole purpose?
1: My understanding was it was it was loyalty. You know, build a core group of people that were super engaged fans and you know members that that could earn perks, basically.
0: Right, and I mean they didn't have a an official magazine uh, in the U.S. during that time there wasn't like any kind of way that they could really drive a program like that without having, because I know PlayStation, you know, they had their underground PlayStation underground and they, you know, they tied it in with the magazine. So they were able to use that as a way to, to drive people to that program, but perhaps it just didn't happen. You could say it didn't happen because of the Saturn kind of waning in support, but it also could just be because they really didn't have a vehicle aside from like third party magazine ads. you know, like next generation or something to really like push a concept like that. Yeah. But it's interesting because I only found out about it from your portfolio, Ken. So (laughs) honestly, like I didn't even know that Sega had plans for an underground. So that blew my mind.
1: This is an example of work that uh, never saw the light of day, but I I liked it enough to just, you know, put it in my portfolio. So
4: (laughs) Mm -hmm. were there talks or any potential plans for a specialized North American Saturn magazine sort of like PlayStation
1: Underground? Not that I'm aware of. I mean, if, if, if there was, I, I wouldn't have been privy to it. Nice.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you did. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's like little things, little nuggets like this that kind of inform us yeah. and give us a give us, I guess you could say, if we're trying to archive and document the history, because yeah. uh, obviously this stuff is important to us it's important to kind of tell the story accurately and it just gives us one tiny little piece of the picture that we were kind of missing, you know, but, so yeah, that's cool.
1: I wish I could give you more. I was, I was, I was, like I said, a kind of a peon designer, so I, I didn't really get much other than the piece of paper from the client that said, this is what we want.
0: <laughs> but I think it was important. I mean, like what you did was more important than, um, then you're giving yourself credit for because like (laughs) you created a visual brand, something that I, that I, as a kid kind of latched onto. I mean, it's hard to, to kind of articulate the importance of design, but it's very subconscious. And I know for myself, Saturn was kind of this underdog console that I just decided to go (laughs) with. I, I was like you, I mean, I had a PlayStation. Yeah, We had one in the house. My dad would, you know, my dad was a musician and would take it on road trips and stuff like that, but we had a lot of access and we had a Nintendo 64 too, but the Saturn felt very individual. It felt very yeah. unique. And it did, it was kind of a dark horse. And I feel like the iconic, um, you know, the font, the logo, the branding, the oddball off the wall kind of marketing and everything like that really personifies what it was, you know, yeah. like love it or hate it, you know. <laughs> um, it's just, and it, it gives so much character, I would say. It, it lends so much more character to the console than just you know a beautiful gray slab that Sony had.
1: Yeah, I was super surprised when uh, when you guys reached out to me because I, I thought I thought Saturn had long died a slow or a fast death rather. <laughs> but I was like, what? It's aged We're like still, a fine there's, wine. <laughs> there's still people out there that that talk about this thing and know about this thing. Wow, and they're still playing the games. It's incredible. <laughs>
0: I think uh these days it's a situation of so many people who missed out on it in the first place because they didn't give it the time of day and so now they're getting to go back and like rediscover it as like a new console like a new retro console and so it's it's gotten new life that way yeah Uh,
1: i think that's pretty awesome
0: yeah i wanted to ask you about uh your allegiance with hockey do you have like a, a hockey team you're in san jose right
1: I am in San Jose. I'm a Sharks fan. (laughs) uh, You know, ironically, actually, I grew up in LA. So, if anything, I would have to say I'm a Kings fan. But, but to be honest, hockey is not really my sport. But I, uh, I remember I loved the the Sharks logo when that came out. Uh, I thought it was really cool. Uh, I'm. I'm I just noticed you did a lot of hockey. Yeah, I did. You, you I know. just
0: noticed you did, yeah, you did Blazers. You did, gosh, you did a Patriots. You did the yep. Patriots logo, right? Yep. Yeah, you have a crazy sports portfolio.
1: <laughs> I think that Patriots logo is what got me the job at the Mednick Group. Cause, oh, yeah. Yeah, the, Scott Mednick, who, who is the founder and owner of the Mednick Group, he's a, he's from Boston, and he had done a, a portfolio review of student work. I, and at the time, I had I'd been working at another design studio called Evenson design group. And that's when uh, I worked on the Patriots logo, but I was, I was in my final year of, of uh, design school. I stuck it in my portfolio. He saw it in the portfolio review, got all, you know, excited about it. And, uh, and then he hired me. So (laughs) I think that that logo got me that job. Hmm. Cool.
4: When the Saturn was first being announced in North America, it was set to release on September 2nd of 1995. They called it Saturn Day and uh, ha- made a big deal out of that being the mm-hmm. event. And then as a, as many Saturn fans know, it had a surprise launch at 1995's E3 on May mm-hmm. 11th. Yep. Were, you, were you made aware of the surprise launch well in advance or was this something that kind of surprised you? I know a lot of developers who work with Sega who were initially making yeah. launch games didn't know about it. Did you happen to know about
1: that before it happened? We did know about it because we were pairing all of the artwork for the billboards and all the signage at E3, so we, we definitely were in the know, but I'm trying to remember, I don't think when we initially did the work, I don't think it was specifically to launch at E3. I think it was uh, later in the process that that we were informed, hey, we want to put this thing on at E3, so, you know, we... I think that changed our timeline a little bit and we had more more pieces to create, but uh, we definitely were were in the know uh, so it wasn't a surprise for us. Gotcha. So you knew it was gonna be a
4: surprise launch well yeah. advance yeah. maybe like say months ahead of time yeah, yeah. but not necessarily at e three, not necessarily on May eleven.
1: no, no we were we
4: were preparing for it right on
0: just makes you wonder if the saturn day thing was like a decoy like a planned decoy <laughs> yeah i mean uh, i mean dave warhol the creator from bug last interview he mentioned that they knew you know they knew they had to be ready you know for a may launch and mm. i was just like blown away by that i was like so wait a second we all take it you know the stories that we've heard that it was like sega kind of scrambling it to try to get ahead of sony But I'm just wondering if, like, that was their plan all along to have this, like, surprise launch. And it just ended up being kind of like a really bad plan. (laughs)
2: Yeah. (laughs) Uh,
4: You'd mentioned that you guys had a conference room with a bunch of video games, a bunch of Sega stuff for uh, brainstorming. What were your favorite Saturn games?
1: I gotta say, I I took to the driving games the most. Um, oh, Daytona, yeah. USA, you know, was probably the one that we we played the most in there. <laughs> <laughs> the music, the music uh, is is uh, and I, I listened to your your racing game podcast from I think it was season two. That was that was very nostalgic to to uh, to hear that and kind of took me back to those days when we were in that conference room. So. I spent most of my time with Ruth racing games. Ironically, my son is now a race car driver or or an aspiring race car driver, so (laughs) it kind of came full circle.
2: Nice. Do you have any favorite memories from your entire sort of experience in working with Sega and and the Saturn brand or anything that really stands out as maybe funny or special or surprising?
1: I mean, I feel like that it, it was a really great, start to my career. I, I sometimes like to joke that, you know, I, I did the Patriots logo and then it was all downhill from there from a from a visibility perspective. The reality is I, I got a lot of opportunities to do a lot of really interesting work for a lot of different companies. And I I'm a sports fan. I'm a video game fan. So to be able to work with companies like Sega, you know, the NFL, the NHL, it was a, it was a total privilege for me. Now I work at Apple and Apple's also a company that I, that, you know, gave me a career. I wouldn't have been able to do things if I, if I didn't have my Mac products. So I'm extremely fortunate to be able to have built a career on things that I love. So.
0: You mentioned before about doing the nothing else matters campaign. You said you did some print ads for that. And I'm wondering Mm -hmm. like, did you, were you responsible for that ad where like, new york city and the and the twin towers are like blowing up in like a mushroom cloud i seem to remember this nothing else matters ad when they launched the network campaign
1: there were two tv spots that, that i worked on we did blow up a base a military base oh and then we the, so we had a guy playing you know while he was supposed to be focusing on uh
0: that was the Alpha Sector one, right? Alpha Sector, yeah, yeah, Tango right. Sector. Yes, alpha Sector, and then, Tango Sector.
1: That's exactly it. And yes. there's only a cockroach left, right? Yes, yes, that's You right. did that. So that, yep, yep. I was the art director on that one. Wow. Uh, and then the other one was an was an airplane uh, pilots, right? Pilots, yeah, uh, with uh, the the Hari Krishna flying the plane in the in the end. So mm-hmm. um, I don't think we, I don't think we blew up. Between two okay. I hope, I hope I didn't. Narrowing down your portfolio is one of the hardest things any any creative person mm-hmm. ever has to do because like you 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 love every piece equally and like you have to pick uh, what do I put in the old version of my portfolio was database driven um, this is back when I was kind of experimenting with building databases and I really wanted to try to put as much in there as possible so that you could filter and mm-hmm. uh, you know I think that's probably the version saw but that that code is so old it no longer really runs on today's browser standards Mm -hmm. Um, so it doesn't doesn't work you you can still link to it from um, from the bottom of of my current site Um, it's just there for like archival purposes but it doesn't really work (laughs) and then uh, my my current portfolio was really just about like how do I how do I just pick my the favorite things that I that I worked on that kind of uh broadly represent my my history in, in design and advertising american gladiators did you guys ever watch american gladiator that was, that was oh fun. absolutely i
2: did the original logo for american Gladiator. Fun. they don't use that anymore but <laughs>
3: that's cool
2: all right ken i want to thank you for taking the time to chat with us today conversations like this are super valuable to us and to the saturn community in general you know, it's been a quarter of a century, but there's still a ton of really dedicated fans. And, and to be able to speak to somebody who was involved in, you know, in that time period and in the story of that machine, it's just really special. And so we're really, really grateful. Thank you so much
1: for chatting
2: with us today. I
1: really, really appreciate you reaching out and uh, taking me th- taking me through a walk down memory lane. It was a lot of fun. And I'm really glad that, uh, you know, people are still paying attention to this stuff. So thank you for for your interest and support. I'll see if I can dig rummage through the garage one of these days and find those
2: rings. <laughs> you find those rings? Yeah. No, that would be awesome. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Oh,
0: that'd be great. You, and you'd have to send them to Ben, you know, so he could uh, don the you rings. Oh,
3: <laughs> dude, I, I would totally wear them. I'd be like, Livestream, we're doing this. the <laughs> shoot!